Okay, open your Bibles, please, to Acts chapters 25. Chapter 25, we'll begin there. We're covering chapters 25 and 26 this morning. We're continuing in a series titled First Followers, where we've been learning from first followers of Jesus what it means to follow Jesus, here and now, on the ground, here in the city of St. Petersburg, 2021, what does it look like to be a follower of Jesus? We're learning that from the first followers of Jesus in the book of Acts. Acts, it's called Acts because these are the acts of the early church, uh, or we could say they, they are the acts of Jesus through the early church, through those first followers. You know, followers of Jesus have been misunderstood from the start. And sometimes it's due to poor decisions of those who say they follow Jesus, and sometimes it's due to misrepresentation of those who are set out against them. Here in Acts 25 and 26, we enter this extraordinary courtroom scene that gets to the heart of what faith in Jesus is all about. The Apostle Paul is standing before the king, and he's given an opportunity to set the record straight. Some conclude that Paul is crazy. Others aren't so sure. So are Paul's words the ramblings of a man gone mad? Or are they the words of hope and freedom that we long for? And so church, whether you find yourself here today, antagonistic towards Christianity, maybe indifferent, maybe a bit callous, or maybe you are wholly committed, regardless of where you are today, this story is for you. This courtroom scene is for us. Now, before we jump into the text itself, the Bible is filled with stories that if we put them to film, would make for some intense scenes. Paul was accused, if you remember, I want to give a little history. Paul was accused of teaching against the Jews, against their laws, against their place of worship, and he was brought from Jerusalem now to Caesarea, and after spending two years in prison, He's handed over to the newly appointed governor, Festus. Festus doesn't understand the charges against Paul. He questions him, and then he invites him to go back to Jerusalem and face his accusers there. Paul knows that there's a new plot to take his life on the way to Jerusalem, and he makes this appeal to Caesar. He's a Roman citizen, and he says, I appeal to Caesar. It's a serious request to make as a Roman citizen. But now that Paul has appealed to Caesar, Festus has nothing to write Caesar concerning the case. You see, Paul's accusers, they didn't come with charges that Governor Festus expected. In chapter 25, verse 19, uh, Festus says, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead but whom Paul asserted or claimed was alive. That's as much as he could gather. Governor Festus is the newly appointed governor, and so King Agrippa and Bernice, his sister, arrive in Caesarea to pay their respect to the newly appointed governor, who then describes his dilemma, and now Agrippa wants to hear Paul himself. And that's where we are. So let's look at chapter 25, beginning in verse 23. So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. 
Then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in, and Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving death, and as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write to my Lord about him. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. And so Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I am going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our 12 tribes uh, hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I am accused by Jews. O king, why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities." In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have a, appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. And we'll stop there. There are four trials in our text today. We have Paul before Agrippa. Paul then, second trial is Paul before King Jesus. The third trial is King Agrippa before King Jesus, and the fourth is you and I before King Jesus. Let's look here at trial number one, Paul before King Agrippa. But before we do, let's pray. Jesus, we acknowledge our desperate need for you to bring light and clarity, hope, insight, 
Spirit of God, we welcome you to put your finger on areas of our lives that need to be repented of or moved away from. We also pray that you would help us to see, uh, Lord, uh, what needs to be embraced all the more and celebrated. We love you and we thank you for your word. Amen. Okay, trial number one. Paul before King Agrippa. Picture this. On one side, you picture just red carpet, the paparazzi taking photos. Uh, Chapter 25, verse 23 says, great pomp, just procession of style, popularity, short-lived authority. This is the who's who of the city. You have high-ranking officials along with Paul's accusers, the Jews. They are all there, this side. And now on this other side, Paul. Nothing extraordinary to look at. He is in chains, and he is not nearly as dressed for the occasion as the rest. Paul addresses his audience with great respect and dignity. There doesn't seem to be a hint of anger or impatience, of fear or frustration, but he had been in prison for two years. Two years. He could have been bitter. He could have immediately begun with the injustice of the imprisonment. He did not. His defense wasn't a defense in the narrow sense of that word. His agenda was greater than that. It was a presentation of the gospel with an invitation to believe. And so what Paul lays out in the verses that we've already read and in the ones after that, it's this beautiful presentation of the good news about Jesus. I love how he does this. There is so much for us to learn here. Paul knew King Agrippa was well acquainted with the Jewish customs and controversies. Why? Because this is King Herod Agrippa II. One of Agrippa's Agrippa's responsibilities was to appoint the high priest of the temple. So he was technically the earthly king of the Jews. He held favor with Rome, but was supposedly on the side of the Jews. Agrippa's great-grandfather was King Herod the Great, who built the city they were in, the city of Caesarea, who built the temple uh, that stood in Jesus' day. He was a paranoid king. He was known for killing sprees, even killing his own family. He was the one who tried to kill baby Jesus. His grandfather was Herod Antipas. This is the one who beheaded John the Baptist, the one that Jesus called that fox, called him a fox. (laughs) His father, Agrippa I, oh, he's the one who had James, the brother of John, beheaded. And he received praise as if he was a god and then he was struck down dead and worms ate him up, we're told. Paul standing before King Herod Agrippa II. And he considered himself fortunate, he says, to stand before this king and make his defense. And he says in in verses six and seven, he talks about it's because of my hope in what God has promised, basically, that I'm here today. What is this hope? What did God promise? What hope? For Paul, the hope of Israel and the resurrection of Jesus were intimately connected. The promise was that of a coming Messiah and of his kingdom, a savior, a deliverer. The hope was that God would one day deliver his people as he had done when when they were slaves in Egypt. 
out of the bonds, out of the chains of, of, of slavery, of oppression. But it was bigger than the oppression of Rome. It's as if he's saying, listen, if you follow the story of Israel, the promise, promises that were given to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, it all leads to Jesus and his resurrection. But for the Jews, uh, this suffering Messiah who would die on a cross, be crucified and be raised to life again was, was crazy talk. And so in, in verse 8 of chapter uh, 26, he asks an important question and he reminds his audience that this is about resurrection. He says, why is it thought incredible that any of you, uh, to, by any of you, that God raises the dead? Why, why couldn't God, the creator of all, raise the dead? Why is it thought incredible? He's, he's saying, this is what we've been waiting for. This isn't a rejection of our most ancient traditions and our richest hopes. This is the fulfillment of them. Trial number two, we see Paul before King Jesus. This is where Paul encounters the risen Savior on his way to Damascus to oppose those followers of Jesus. Paul can identify with his accusers. He wanted to silence every follower of Jesus. He was convinced that he needed to do everything possible to oppose the name of Jesus. This is his story now. He put many in prison. He voted to have them put to death. He tried to make them blaspheme. He describes his actions as raging fury. He did it all with the authority and commission of the chief priests. That is until a greater authority confronted him. And so he explains it as a bright light, brighter than the sun. And he heard a voice that said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Jesus the king, the king of all, appears before Paul and begins with what would be a life-changing question. Why do you persecute me? Now, that's what Jesus begins with. Jesus' question reveals this remarkable truth. Persecution of the church is persecution of Jesus. You're opposing me, Paul, as you oppose the church, as you oppose those who follow me. You're opposing me. Now, I want to read again, beginning in verse 15 of chapter 26, what Jesus said. These words are so important. Verse 15, and I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, Jesus said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and a witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I'm sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they might receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified or set apart by faith in me. Wow. What thoughts are screaming through the Apostle Paul's mind in this moment as he encounters Jesus? What, what, what thoughts, what questions, what prophecies fulfilled? Jesus is the centerpiece of it all. And that's what he's thinking. Jesus, I had it all wrong. He's the Messiah. He's the promised one. 
He's the one that I've been anticipating and longing for, but I've been fighting against. In verse 14, Jesus began, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. What in the world are goads? They're sharp sticks used to prod cattle uh, or oxen along. If, and if they're, kicked, uh, in, if they're kicking in resistance, you, you would keep, you keep the oxen, the, the cattle in line by using these goads. And so it's about guidance in the midst of resistance. You're kicking against the goads. It's hard to do so. Have you been pushing against the goads? It's an odd term, I know. Have you been pushing against God's will? What God has accomplished in Jesus, have you been pushing against that? Have you been pushing against what Jesus has set out to accomplish through his church? Maybe it doesn't fit your narrative. Maybe it's too uncomfortable for you to consider. Maybe you know that it means everything is going to change. In one instant, everything changed for Paul. Jesus had completely invaded his life and redefined his story. Jesus was what Paul tried so hard to deny and to fight. He was Savior. He is Savior. Are you fighting hard to deny it? Paul receives this direct commission then from the king of kings. So here we have on the road to Damascus, this is Paul's conversion, you could say, where he encounters the risen Christ and he, he believes so he places his faith in Jesus. He most certainly does. I mean, Jesus is there in front of him. But with this conversion experience comes a commissioning that I think we can miss. It's right there. Jesus highlights it. So we have conversion and we have commissioning. He says, I have appeared to you for this purpose. There's commissioning here. To appoint you. To appoint you as a servant and a witness. And this servant language is rooted in the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 42 and 49, which speaks about this global thing that God is doing and drawing the nations to himself through his servant, ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. But Paul will be a servant of this message, a witness. And he says in verse 18, Jesus says to Paul, as he, as he goes to the Gentiles, to the non-Jews, their eyes will be opened that they might turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God. Why? That they might receive forgiveness of sins and, don't miss this, and a place. Oh, we long for a place. We long to belong. A place among those who are sanctified in me. A place among those who are set apart by faith in me. That's what Jesus has done in our lives. As we put our faith and our hope and our trust in Jesus, what we find is that here we are turning away from darkness to light. We're turning away from the powers of the Satan, the deceiver, to the power of God. Why? And in that, we are receiving forgiveness of sins. We receive forgiveness. And we receive a place among those who are sanctified by faith in Jesus. We belong. This is what happened to Paul on the road to Damascus. This encounter, this conversion, this commissioning. Paul had appeared before King Jesus. He's making it known to King Agrippa that he had appeared before King Jesus. Trial number three, King Agrippa before King Jesus. Let's keep reading what happens beginning in verse 19. 
Therefore, O king, therefore, O king Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ, the anointed one, must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Paul, or Festus rather, said with a loud voice, Paul, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I'm speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly, for I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God, that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Then the king rose, and the governor, and Bernice, and those who were sitting with them, and when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, this man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. King Agrippa is brought before King Jesus. We learn that the essence or the heart of Paul's message that he was to bring and that he did bring to the Gentiles, to the non-Jews and the Jews alike, was one of repentance. Repentance involves turning away and turning towards. Makes sense because Jesus had commissioned him to proclaim a message that involved turning away from darkness and turning to the light, turning away from the power of Satan to the power of God. So it involves turning away and turning towards, turning away from idols and turning to the living God, turning away from those other things that we have put in the, in the center of our lives, that we've begun to revolve our life around, and turning to the living God. And this includes a sorrow for sin, owning up to the fact that we are sinners, that we have offended a holy God, that we've turned away from him. So we're owning up to that, but also it requires a reorientation. A reorientation is called for, a recentering of our lives on the truth and the beauty of who Jesus is and what he's accomplished. Paul talks about deeds in keeping with their repentance. In other words, True repentance can be seen in a changed lifestyle. You can say you've embraced Jesus, but does your life show it? I'm not going to be a police officer here and try to, you know, show, you know but the, your life gives your faith away. Your, your life should show that you belong to Jesus. Your life should show that you are a man or a woman who has uh, received conviction 
this desire to repent, this desire to honor the Lord Jesus with your life, every facet of your life, and you say, hey, I do that imperfectly, but I want to do all that I can to move forward with my words, with my life, uh, everything, my relationships. Does your life give away that you belong to Jesus? True repentance can be seen in your life. He says, I, I stand here testifying both to small and great alike. And he said, I'm not saying anything beyond what the prophets and what Moses have said before. He's rooted his story, the testimony of who Jesus is, in the ancient promises of the Jews. Because the story of Jesus and who he is grows out of that story. And Paul's saying it's not disconnected. I've not, I've not walked away from these truths that I've, I've embraced all my life. Here's the difference. I see them fulfilled in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And of course, in the resurrection, which he emphasizes again. Festus, he just can't take it. <laughs> he shouts, you crazy. You gone mad. A bodily resurrection was almost unimaginable. No sensible Roman <laughs> could believe in the resurrection of a man from the dead. And, and even if he did believe it privately, it wouldn't affect the way he lived publicly. This outburst, in the middle of Paul's defense, it could have just silenced everything. Paul could have sheepishly backed away. He could have backed down, but he doesn't. Paul goes on to say, hey, I'm speaking true and rational words here. This didn't happen in a corner. It's a proverbial expression, which means it didn't take place in some set of private visionary experiences. It wasn't a private event. Paul is talking about the life, the trial, the death, and resurrection of Jesus. Paul is talking about the word of the prophets having come true in Jesus. This didn't happen in a corner. He's talking about the transformed lives of faithful Jews who believe in, in a single, supreme, personal God and who know that it's blasphemy to suggest that any human being should be worshipped, and yet countless Jews begin worshipping Jesus. This didn't happen in a corner. Everyone who hears the message of Jesus and his resurrection is in that moment on trial. Regardless of their criticism or doubt, position or authority, everyone stands before the King of Kings when the good news of Jesus is held high. Everyone is brought to a crossroads. Unbelief and fear is confronted, it's challenged. And he says in verse 25, I love this, he says, I'm speaking true and rational words. True and rational words. And then in, in verse 27, he says, King Agrippa, do you believe? Oh, no, he didn't. He addressed the king that way. He challenged the king in front of everyone, in front of Governor Festus, who just said Paul was out of his mind, in front of everyone, the who's who, the elite of society. Hey, king, do you believe? I know you do. Everyone's in shock at this question. Everyone is waiting for the answer. You could hear a pin drop. How will the king answer this question? 
The king had been trying to walk on both sides of the fence. He is king of the Jews. He's trying to live a Jewish life and a pagan life. Doesn't really want to give up either one of them either. What about you? Maybe you've been trying to walk on both sides of the fence. You can't do it. It's not possible. You got one foot in Christianity. You got the other foot in the world. And you think that's okay. You think that's going to work. You're comfortable with that. It, it, it doesn't work that way. The king had been trying to walk on both sides of the fence. He doesn't want to give up either side. He doesn't want to disappoint those Jews that he's leading. He doesn't want to disappoint Rome. He doesn't want to give up the freedoms that he believes he has. What's it going to cost to follow Jesus? I'm sure it's just screaming through his head. What is Paul fighting for in this moment when he asks this question of the king? Is it his own personal freedom that he's after? No. Is it to be acknowledged as right? You're right, Paul. True and rational words didn't happen in a corner. You are so right. You're right. Not just about being right. <laughs> Is he trying to make life difficult for Agrippa? No. No, no. He is after the king's salvation. He cares. I want to show you what happens when we speak the gospel. Go with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20. What happens when we speak the truth of Jesus, we learn from Paul when he writes to the Corinthians, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. Imagine that. We implore you, we beg you, on behalf of Christ, he says, be reconciled to God. The message that we have is a message of reconciliation. It's a message of a restored relationship with God, made possible through Jesus. And so when we proclaim Christ, here's what we're doing. We are ambassadors for Christ. We're his representatives. And it is God himself who is making an appeal through us. Just think of that. It's so humbling. It's such a privilege. Paul understood that. Do you understand that? The, the king's answer is clever. But Paul understood that as he proclaimed Jesus, that the king himself, the king, king Agrippa, was brought before King Jesus. And then Paul's answer, so humble, did he raise his wrists to show his chains whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. I want everyone here in this room to become what I am, a follower of Jesus, is what he's saying. The words of a truly free man He's the only one in the room with chains on and he's more concerned with the bondage of his hearers than the chains around his wrists. I 
I wonder if we're more concerned with being right. I wonder sometimes if we can be more concerned about the opposition we're under or we feel we're under. I wonder if we can be more concerned about perceived chains around our wrists instead of the freedom of those that we're standing before in this city. It's a good challenge to me, to us as a church community. What are we about? We're just trying to be right. Are we speaking true and rational words about something that didn't happen in a corner, happened in broad daylight? Are we speaking true and rational words about Jesus, the King, who came to reconcile us to God? Well, that leads to our fourth trial, and that is you and I before King Jesus. It's happening right now. Right now. Whether you have been antagonistic towards Christianity, whether you've been indifferent or increasingly curious, we find ourselves in an extraordinary situation right now. We stand before Jesus. The king himself, the king himself, the king himself has come to your defense. The king himself has made an appeal. The king himself has extended an invitation. For the follower of Jesus, Paul's courage, his passion, his faith, oh, it should inspire us. We want to imitate it, right? The way he spoke of Jesus. For those who don't follow Jesus in this room, maybe you've been looking for some time Maybe you've been curious. Maybe you've had really bad experiences in the past. Maybe you've been antagonistic. I want you to hear the words of Jesus. I want you to listen to what Jesus spoke to Paul. This was Paul's mission that has become our mission, every follower of Jesus after him. That we might bring the truth of who Jesus is, that eyes would be opened, so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they might receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in Jesus. If you are not a follower of Jesus, that is my prayer for you. That's my hope that you would turn from darkness to light, from the power of the deceiver to the power of the living God, that you would find forgiveness of sins, oh my, and a place among those who are set apart by faith in Jesus. That's available for you. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that as we stand before your presence, we can do so because of your great love and mercy, that you have paid the price for our sins, that you lived a perfect life of obedience that we couldn't live, that now you invite us in to a relationship, a living, breathing relationship to live boldly and courageously in the power of your spirit Help us to do that.
Help us to boldly proclaim the realities of who you are, your love, your grace, the salvation that is found in you through all that you've accomplished for us. Help us not to shrink back when people think we're nuts, when people think we're crazy, when people want to write us off, when people are opposing us. Help us to not fight for the wrong things, but help us to have a broken heart for those even who are opposing us. Lord, help us to love our enemies. Help us to love those who are in front of us by sharing you with them. And please, Lord, would you by your spirit turn individuals from darkness to light now in this moment from the power of the deceiver to the power of God. That they would have, yes, a conversion experience, a salvation experience here in this moment today, but also a commissioning experience. That they would become followers who then have this this new call to make the truth and the beauty of who you are known. Do that today, I pray, in hearts and lives. In Christ's name, amen.